it wasn't really adequate even as the old one hadn't been. So I turned the old one back on, but uh, I thought the water supply to it was working and it wasn't. So it was dry and blowing warm air. So we're filling the reservoir now and uh, we should have them back on, both on here shortly. And uh, maybe it'll help cool it down just a little bit. So I'm glad we're not meeting out in the sunshine anyway. Christ often taught the multitudes right out in the sunshine. And uh, I don't know whether he went early or whether he went late always, but uh, the weather is something there to contend with for sure. Anyway, it is God's Sabbath, a beautiful day, and uh, thankful that we're here alive to enjoy it. We finished up the uh, two books of Corinthians last week. And I want to turn elsewhere now for a while. I don't know how long a while. But uh, we're looking at a world that is in turmoil. Uh, Even as we sit here today, there's a hurricane blowing into Louisiana. Uh, It did reach hurricane level. And they're expecting 10 to 20 and some even saying 30 inches of rain out of that storm. Uh, The Mississippi River is already 16 feet above uh, flood stage. They expect a four to six foot uh, storm surge. And what this will mean for Louisiana, Mississippi, and uh, that area through there is uh, in some ways unimaginable. And we have other problems going on, which I'll probably get into a little later. But we have to look at what is going on in the world with a sense of reality. We have had various views of various things in the past that have turned out not to be quite that way. Uh, I'm going back 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years in the Church of God. Uh, I was recently told that we have to get away from all this Herbert Armstrong crap. That was the word that was used. Uh, and move on into truth. Well, I personally firmly believe that Herbert Armstrong was on the right track. Uh, I went back and have reviewed what I had learned and known there and what uh, I have learned since and my experiences in life. And I have no doubt that we are on the right track. Uh, I'm not shaken by somebody persecuting us in the least. And... Uh, What we've just been through shows that the church of God is going through right now everything that Paul uh, talked about in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Uh, There's nothing new under the sun. We face the same problems today that we did then. And Paul went through them and survived until he died. (laughs) And we will go through them and survive until we die or are changed, whichever comes first. So, I want to look at the realities of what's going on in the world somewhat uh, and compare them in some ways to what we have thought we understood in the past. Not that doctrine has been necessarily wrong or even the general flow of prophecy, but some things that were kind of expected did not happen. They didn't expect, they didn't come when we thought. Decades ago they would, 
nor have they shaped up in the way that we thought we would. Not just the timing, but even some of the actors on the stage are not appearing in the way that the church thought they would. So that knowledge was not given at that time, <clears throat> was it needed at that time, but we have to look at what is actually happening, what is actually shaping up, and try to identify some of the players on the stage from that, as well as uh, many other factors to consider. Now, I'm going to begin this in Matthew 23, uh, partly because of some of the things I just said. <clears throat> There was a time of great expectancy that the Jews would have a great part to play in the end time. Herbert Armstrong was quite uh, happy with the idea that he was of the lineage of David and through, in that sense, the lineage of Christ on down until today. And he considered himself a Jew, and indeed uh, he may have been, I don't know. Uh, that will be all sorted out in the future. But nevertheless, he was always very kindly affection toward the Jews and looked to them a great deal. He also worked with them over in the Middle East, uh, at least those who say they are Jews, although they may not many of them be, I think it's turned out many of them are Edomites uh, instead of real Jews. But be that as it may, uh, Herbert Armstrong could not get anything going over there. He actually sent a man over to try to raise up a church in the Middle East, in Jerusalem, back in, what was the year? I forget now. It was 19... Late 30s, I think, as I recall. Anyway, I've, I've got it written down, but I don't remember exactly. But he sent someone over there for the express purpose of starting a work over there. And it didn't pan out at all. Could not happen. Did not happen. And even as much as he looked to the Jews, we never even had, throughout the history of Worldwide until it died, we never had a congregation in the nation we call Israel today. Uh, never occurred. Uh, far as I know, unless somebody hauled somebody over there and baptized them, there were never even any conversions over there. No one of that population there that I've ever heard of was actually properly uh, indoctrinated with the truth and properly baptized. There's some from here that went over there to get baptized, maybe, and some ministers from here and in the church uh, tried to do some of those things. But nothing could ever happen there. Now, after Herbert Armstrong died, people didn't know what to do. Uh, they became confused. And quite a number, fairly, oh, I don't know what percentage you could put on it, but uh, here and there throughout the church, quite a number of people began to try to follow Jewish uh, tradition and Jewish ways. They adopted Jewish dancing and Jewish music and all those things and were looking to the Jews. Uh, church always did to the calendar until a few began to wake up and realize that it didn't follow the heavens. So even on the calendar, the Jews were completely and totally wrong. 
that calendar does not fit with the Bible whatsoever. And I think we've gone through and proved that. And now we follow the heavenly calendar that God put in the heavens. And all you have to do is just do what it says. Uh, if it says that the holy day is on Friday, that's fine. You do what it says, and then you have the Sabbath the next day, the weekly Sabbath. The Jews will postpone something because they don't like the way the heavens read. Well, how are you going to change what God put in the heavens? For heaven's sake, let's say. You can't do that. You have to follow what God put there. Now, in the light of Herbert Armstrong's very strong drawing toward the Jews and what happened among church people later, let's look at chapter 23 to start this, because there are many, many people around the world, the whole Christian world and the Jewish world, and perhaps even the Islamic world to one degree or another, who expect the Jews to build a temple in the Jerusalem in the Middle East. In fact, the Islamic world understands what the Jews want to do, and the Dome of the Rock Muslim mosque is perched where the Jews think they need to build the temple. So there's a great contention between the Islamic world or the Muslims and the Jews as to that particular spot. And really, bottom line in the Middle East is the Palestinian problem uh, that we've dealt with over the years and the Jewish problem and the fighting between the Arab world and the so-called Jews who were put in charge of that area of the world uh, after World War II uh, is problematic, and the whole world is watching it. So the control of what they consider Jerusalem is the real issue because the Muslims want to control it uh, for their religious reasons and the Jews want to control it for their religious reasons. And everything else is subordinate to that. All the little battles you see here and there are have this problem or this premise as their basis. Uh, because that's the ultimate goal of each side, is to control that area. Now, are the Jews going to be used by God to build a temple there? That is a fundamental question that needs to be asked, because you and I may not view it that way. I certainly don't, and you probably don't from things we've studied before. But let's review a little bit and get this clearly in mind. What, did, what was Christ's relationship with the Jews when he was here? Through the Gospels, you find him constantly at odds with them, do you not? Uh, he called them lots of names. <laughs> He decried who they were and what they were trying to do. So let's pick it up in chapter 23 and get a view from Christ himself about the Jews. And that leads into some other things that we've already sort of mentioned, but we'll get into deeper. Then spoke 
Emmanuel to the multitude and to his disciples. So there was a multitude of people there. And we'll find in the context as we go on that that multitude had within it scribes and Pharisees. Because any time he was teaching, they tried to make their presence known. They wanted to hear everything he said. They wanted to be able to try to rebut it, to take him, uh, imprison him, or kill him, or stop him in any way they could. So when he was speaking, they sometimes interrupted and interjected their ideas and asked him leading questions to try to trip him up. Now, that was sort of the normal day-by-day scene that was going on. The Jews trying to dishonor and reject him and to get the multitudes not to follow and to listen to him. So that was every day going on. Just as Paul was tilting at windmills, having to fight enemies within the church later on, Christ was fighting day-by-day his enemies the scribes and Pharisees, or the leaders of the actual Jews of that day. It wasn't just uh, Edomites or the descendants of Esau, but the actual Jews themselves that he was up against. So he spoke to his disciples and the multitude along with them, and this is what he had to say. The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Now you could trace back from the time of Moses, when the priesthood was set up, and see that there had been a continuous line of the Levites, the Jews, uh, in the priesthood from the time of Moses on down. So they were sitting, technically, in the authority of Moses. Now, Christ was about to change that, as we know, and he called disciples and then transformed them into apostles a little later on. But what he's saying here is an acknowledgement that they do have a certain authority because they are from that priesthood that went all the way back. So there was a certain validity in their office, but that was all as we shall soon see here. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do, but do not you after their works, for they say and do not. So what did they do in the temple service? They read the Scriptures, the Old Testament. uh, And they taught that you ought to follow that. But they didn't follow it, uh, as we shall see here. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. So even back in that time, the Jews obviously had laid things on the people that the Old Testament Scriptures had not done. You had the law of Moses and the statutes and the ordinances that he gave from God, But they, the Pharisees and Sadducees, had added more and more grievous and burdensome things to that law. Now today, we understand and read that uh, they can't turn a light on or off on the Sabbath. Uh, That's not in the Scripture. They can't 
uh, unroll toilet paper on the Sabbath. It needs to be unrolled and torn off ahead of time. Uh, this, this is the strict Jews. They don't have an ordinance, as far as I've heard, about pulling the handle on the toilet. I mean, where does it stop? <laughs> if you can't tear off tissue, why? then you shouldn't be able to pull a handle, should you? I mean, it gets ridiculous. But you can go on and on and on, and I need not take our time with that, about all the things that they have laid upon people that you cannot do uh, on the Sabbath day. And they had already, at that time, laid all kinds of things upon the people. So he said, They put these on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. They're not going to do all the things that they laid on people to do. It wasn't just God's laws that had been that they were laying on people. It was all their extra stuff that they had laid on them. And they weren't about to do it themselves. But all their works they do for to be seen of men. So, right off the bat, he says they're self-centered, they're egocentric, they're vain. Uh, everything they do is for the approbation and the applause and the goodwill of people. So they were doing it all as a show, but not from the heart to obey God. It was all a show for men. They make broad their sleeves on their uh, clothing and enlarge the borders of their garments. Now we know from history that what they did was had big white areas on their sleeves and broad white areas on their garments, and those were used to write down their great works. So that when he put his arm out, you could read what he had done, of how wonderful he was and what great works had been done. All to be seen. And love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues. Had to be right front and center, the uppermost places, the highest levels. They wanted to be seen of men and they wanted to be in charge or have power and be in those places. And greetings in the markets and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. So they just were narcissistic to the core, selfish to the core, and wanted to be recognized and called holy men, or rabbis, or masters. That would be hard to live with, wouldn't it? Anyway, he says, But be not you called rabbi. For one is your master, even Christ, and all you are brethren. Now, he's really throwing the gauntlet down in front of them with that statement. Because here they were saying, we sit in Moses' seat, and we are the authorities, and everybody has to look up to us and call us master. And he says, there's only one. That's the Christ. And you amount to how much? Nothing. Only one is the teacher and the master, not you. So that is an incredible put-down right there, right off the bat. 
And all you are just brothers. You have really, in that sense then, no authority. And he's going to tell them that unequivocally just a little later on. Verse 9, And call no man your father upon the earth. So what do they do today? You're still called the rabbi or the master or the father. And the Catholic Church uh, calls the Pope Padre, Padre, Father, Father. Uh, he says, call no, call no man on your earth Father, for one is your Father which is in heaven. Now, Paul referred him to himself as Father at times and said, My little children. But he was not doing it in the same way that they were, and it did not have the same meaning. Instead of being called Father as a religious term, he was called Paul. All the apostles went by their first names. It wasn't Mr., it wasn't Master, it wasn't Rabbi, it was just Paul, James, Peter, and John. That's the way Christ did it. And even he, who was the Master, was called Jesus. Uh, went by his first name. So that's the example that Christ set. I think we had that wrong in Worldwide. Uh, I changed it myself when I was still a ministry in Worldwide back in the 70s. And I told the people in the congregations where I was at the time in Idaho, uh, don't call me Mr. Henson anymore. I'm Daryl. If it was good enough for James and Peter and James and Paul, it's good enough for me. I don't want to be called Mr. or Master. Uh, had Pasadena heard that, I probably would have been fired on the spot. I don't know. Uh, but I, I stopped with the coat and tie about then. Well, just on Sabbath, I still wore the coat and tie, but not to visit. Uh, anyway, that's another story. But here he's saying, don't do that. Call no man your father except he which is in heaven. Now, I don't think Paul was distorting that by saying, in a sense, he was the father of the church. He's the one that, that birthed it, that started it, and they were the children in it. But he did not demand the title of father. There's a difference between a family relationship, which is what he intended, and a uh, religious title, which the Catholic Church and the Jews use. That's an entirely different matter. It's not a contradiction. And obviously God allowed it and had it printed. So what Paul was doing and how he was doing, it was okay with God. Uh, verse 10, Neither be you called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. Just one. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. Now, these guys were not being servants at all. They were taking from and lording it over the people, and they were called master. They weren't called servants. Uh, didn't want to be called servants. Whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Well, that's the way we're supposed to do it, is work at being humble, not self-centered and egocentric. Now, verse 13, he pronounces a woe. Uh, have you read about the woes in the book of Revelation? 
when the woes are turned loose on the world, it is going to be a terrible, terrible time. So he uses that word here. Woe to you. Uh, you're going to have trouble. Trouble is going to come upon you. That's what woe is. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. He's saying, what you're doing and what you're teaching is causing people to be shut out of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Not helping them be a part of it. Now, what were the apostles there to do, as Paul said there in Corinthians and other places so many times? We're there to help you on your trip toward the kingdom of God, not keep you from it. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees were, were working just the other direction. Christ told them, what you're doing is keeping people out of the kingdom of God, not getting them into it. For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves. He's telling them right here, you're not going to be part of the kingdom of God. Neither suffer you them that are entering to go in. You're not only not going yourselves, but you're not the ones that are following you aren't going either. Now, do you want to follow someone who is not going into the kingdom of God, and if you follow them, you won't go in either? <laughs> Would you want to follow anything they taught or did? As the church of God began to do in quite some numbers, uh, especially after Herbert Armstrong died. This, this is a whole lot different than that, isn't it, so far? I haven't gone very far yet. Let's see if it gets any worse. Uh, he says, woe again, verse 14. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Call them a hypocrite again. How far do you get when you start talking to people like this usually? I called somebody a lying land thief the other day and didn't go over too well. Got all upset with me. I said, well, sue me then. He said, well, I don't sue people. And I says, well, what about the lawsuit you've got going right now if you don't sue people? For you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers, therefore you shall receive the greater damnation. So the further they pushed what they were doing and teaching, the worse it gets, he says. He said, your short prayer was bad enough, but your long prayer is even worse. Because if the prayer is bad to start with, if it gets longer, it can't be anything but worse. You'll receive the greater damnation. He says, the further you take this, the worse it's going to be. Third woe <laughs> to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. You make big efforts 
to convert people to your religion, and then them believing you makes them twice the son of hell that you are because they believed you and followed what you said. This is pretty powerful if you stop to think about it. Fourth woe. (laughs) Woe to you, you blind guides. He called them blind. Now, we have guides around here that will take you on tours of Zion or Grand Canyon or Bryce Canyon or different places. Uh, There are some really steep areas, aren't there, and some roads without much on either side. And they're driving these vans and jeeps full of people. How about if you happen to get a blind guide and he's going to take you on a tour of the national parks? That would create terror. (laughs) You wouldn't want that. So he calls them blind guides. Now, they were trying to lead people spiritually toward the kingdom of God, and he said they were blind. They didn't know where they were going or what they were doing. Which say, whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, uh, he is a debtor or a sinner. You fools and blind. Not only were they blind, but they were blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? Now, they were after the gold, really, uh, because they weren't obeying the truth. That's what they wanted. But the temple was greater than the gold. The gold just adorns the temple, is all it does. And whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing. But whosoever swears by the gift that is upon it, he is... uh, What's the word it uses in the Hebrew here? Uh, He is bound. What they were actually saying then was it's the gold that is important, and it is the gift that you bring to the altar that is important or that is what you are bound by, is better translation than guilty. In other words, here's the altar, here's the temple, and we're going to give you credit for what you bring and lay on the altar for us. So what you bring in the gift is more important, and that's what you're bound by is your gift, so-called to God. But they were the ones that received it. So they were putting more emphasis on the gold and the money and the gifts than they were on the altar or the temple itself. So then he says, Which, you fools and blind, which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? If something is sanctified and set apart as holy, it was what caused it to be holy that was more important than what was not holy and is made holy. Whoso therefore shall swear by the altar, swears by it and by all things thereon. And whoso shall swear by the temple, swears by it and by him that dwells therein. And he that shall swear by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him that sits thereon. So he's saying... You're fools and blind. You've got the cart before the horse. You've got it all backward. And (coughs) your real goal is the gifts and the gold. 
But then you swear by these bigger things, and it means nothing. Because you're not following God, who is the one who does the sanctifying of both the altar and the temple, and his own throne. So they could cry out to God, they could cry out to the temple or the altar, or get on what they call the wailing wall today, and all these bitter tears and prayers, and it means nothing, because they're liars and thieves and hypocrites. So it doesn't matter what they swear by. Then the fifth woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought you to have done, and not to leave the other undone. So it says you ought to have tithed, but the bigger things than that are the weightier matters. Judgment, mercy, faith, forgiveness, kindness, the fruit of the Spirit of God. Now, with the tithing, though, they even got down to where they actually counted individual seeds. They wanted people to be sure every tenth seed was given to God. That's like tearing off the toilet paper uh, ahead of, well, six o'clock they use, not sundown. They don't get the Sabbath right either. Now, come on, is God that picky? Where's the simplicity that's in Christ? Do you count every seed? Or do you do nine shovels for you and one shovel for God? Do you do one dump truck load for God and nine for you? Put God first. I did it opposite. I think he'd be happy with counting dump truck loads instead of seeds. But those are the grievous things to be born that the Jews put on people. Then he calls them blind guides in verse 24, which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. You can't figure out what is important and what is not important. You get all upset about the very, very small things and you forget about the big things. Woe to you, six woe, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you may clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. So he says, you, you wipe off the outside, and inside the cup and in the plate is all kinds of filth. Extortion and excess. They extorted and used it for themselves. You blind Pharisees, Cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. It isn't just the outward appearance, in other words, of all those good deeds you wrote on your white garments, but it's what's inside you that is the problem. It is not true of all of us, to one degree or another, as we try to be a Christian. We do the things we think we should do, and... In the eyes of our brethren, we try to do what is right. But our biggest problems are inside, aren't they? In the heart and mind. And the ego, uh, there's, there's where we fight. Okay, six woe. Woes are terrible things. And he's pronouncing them upon these people. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
For you are like whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Now, you can go to a cemetery and you got all these monuments there and they have people's names on them and when they died and all this stuff and they're out of beautiful marble or other stone that people use. And uh, don't look too bad. But uh, what's down in that grave or in that mausoleum? Uh, it's a whole different deal than that pretty piece of garnet up there. Or granite, I mean. They're full of rotting flesh. They said, that's what you're full of. You're just like a rotten dead person inside. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. You try to look good, but you don't think good. You don't do good. And then the seventh woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchers of the righteous. You give lip service to the prophets. You put flowers on their tombs or whatever they did to garnish them and dress them up and make them look good. And say... If we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. So, here they have some of the graves of the prophets, and they're decorating them, and even though the prophets are exonerated and applauded by God for carrying the message to a sinful people... These hypocrites said, well, we wouldn't have been like those prophets. We wouldn't have done the things that they did. And, oh, oh, no, no, that's not, I'm sorry. He said, we wouldn't have killed the prophets like those people back there did. Oh, you wouldn't? Who were they about to kill? Greatest prophet of all time. Who did they later kill? All but one of the apostles of Christ. John, who did apparently live and die a natural death. But they killed the rest, so here they're saying we wouldn't have killed those prophets. No, they were just about to kill all the the greatest prophet and all the other prophets that he set up. We wouldn't have done that, and he knew they were about to. We wouldn't have done that. Wherefore, you be witnesses to yourselves that you are the children of them which killed the prophets. So he says, yeah, you're just their children. And he's implying that they're about to do it again. Fill you up, then, the measure of your fathers. So he tells them, you're just like your fathers were who killed the prophets. Go ahead and fill up the measure of the prophets. Go ahead and do what those people did to those prophets. And then shortly thereafter, they did. So he's throwing it right in their face. Saying not only would you have done it, you're still going to do it. Then he calls them snakes. You generation of snakes. Not just snakes, but poisonous snakes. Vipers. How can you escape the damnation of the grave? How can you do that? He's talking about eternally not just the physical grave here, because they knew they'd go there. 
How are you going to escape? He's already told them they wouldn't be in the kingdom of God, right? Unless they changed, certainly. They don't. They didn't die and go to heaven. Wherefore, behold, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes. So some of the apostles were prophets, and there were other prophets in the church. Uh, there were wise men that he had taught, and then there are those who wrote uh, the Gospels, the epistles of Paul, of John, and so on. James, Peter, <coughs> scribes. And some of them you shall kill and crucify. So here he's prophesying. He's telling them what they're about to do. And some of them shall you scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Barachias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. He says, upon you, Jews, is going to come the blood of all. From your fathers who killed them then to you who are going to kill them now. How could you get any stronger than this? Truly I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. That bunch of people that were right there then were going to kill him and the apostles. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that kills the prophets and stone them, which are sent to you, not back then, but to you too. How often would I have gathered your children together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, and you would not. How does he talk about it in the book of Hosea, how he drew them with the bands of men. He tried to draw them to him, or he tried to bring them as a hen with her chicks, and they wouldn't, as he says here. How often would I have, but you just would not listen. And how did they take this lesson? They did not listen. They went ahead and did, right here, what he told them they would do. Your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall not see me henceforth till you say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Eternal. So what he's saying is, I am departing from you. Your house will be left desolate. You will have no contact with God. Christ and his Father were the same, right? They were one. And if he said, I'm not going to have anything to do with you, then his father wouldn't have anything to do with them either. Now, they depended on the father uh, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he said, no, you're going to be desolate. So, when the Jews pray, even as their prayers were an abomination then, when they pray today, their prayers are still an abomination to God. Now, them's fighting words. If I were saying that to an audience of Jews today, and I told them their prayers were an abomination to the Father and the Son, they would not go for that. They'd either get up and leave or try to kill me. But that's what Christ is saying here. 
You'll not see me till you say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Eternal. Now, who came in the name of the Eternal? Here Christ was talking to the disciples and to the multitude, including the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were the ones he zeroed in in this whole chapter, and the ones he was talking directly to when he said this. Well, he had trained a ministry, and those trainees were there listening. So later they killed him, and then they killed them. And they have not yet called blessed those he has sent in his name. Not yet. Now, there are a few who have turned messianic, but they don't recognize the true God and Christ himself. They have taken a few of them, his name. Most haven't, but a few have. But they don't do the things that he says. They don't follow the scripture. Well, these people weren't doing the things that he said either. So a messianic is no better than a Baptist or a Methodist or a Catholic. They're all worshiping Satan to this day. What did he tell them? In other places, you worship no, you know not what. And he told them directly, you worship Satan the devil. Now, have they repented? No. They're just like they were then, only maybe worse today. So when he told them, you worship Satan the devil, he knew what he was talking about. And the Jews to this day worship Satan, whether they know it or not, and their prayers are an abomination to God. He hears not sinners. Now that gives us some background. Let's go into chapter 24 now, which is really the target that I was headed for in the first place. But we need a little bit of background to understand Matthew 24 in the light of today and of prophecies and who's going to do what here at the end time. Now Jesus, or Emmanuel, went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. So he went out. He was apparently teaching there at the temple with what he had just said, or this might have been a different day. It doesn't really say. But it sounds like he just, after he got done excoriating the scribes and Pharisees, then he went out and departed from the temple, because that's probably what the scene was. He was talking about the altar and the temple and so on, and how they were misusing and abusing it, and worshiping the things that were brought there more than sanctifying the temple and the altar itself. So, once they got away from the temple, then the disciples looked back and said, Look at these buildings. Now, they just heard what he had said to these leaders. And he said to them, Your house is going to be left desolate. Now, to the disciples, they could have only interpreted that is this temple that we were hearing this in, or at, is going to be desolate. And that was probably hard for them to grasp. Because that was the first question out of their minds. Look back at this temple. You said it's going to be desolate. 
What did you mean? Have you ever put that together that way before? That he had told them it's going to be desolate. And they walk out and they pointed back and said, the buildings of the temple. What do you mean? What were you talking about when you said that to those guys? This place has been being used now for a long time. Is it going to be desolate? What does desolate mean? Well, to me, that means nobody there. Nobody there. Now, he'll explain, and it's going to be even worse than nobody there. Okay? Let's go on. And Jesus said to them, See you not all these things? Now, what are, they, what are you talking about? Well, they just pointed at the buildings. And he said, Do you see these? Well, yeah, that's what we're talking about. Truly I say to you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. In other words, not only desolate, but not even existing. Every stone thrown down. Now, that temple was destroyed shortly thereafter. And the Jews, to this day, think that not every stone was thrown down. They think there's one wall of it left. They go to a wall on the side of what they call uh, the area where Solomon's temple was and where the Dome of the Rock or the uh, Muslim mosque is today. And kind of below that, down off the hill or the little raised area there, is the Wailing Wall. And they say that that is the west wall of the temple to this day. I've been there, and I've seen all these Jews coming down, and they'll go to the wall, and they say all kinds of prayers. They stick their face up against it, and they make all these prayers about the temple and rebuilding and so on. And they cry, and they shriek, and they holler, and they sit back there and chant. And uh, it's kind of like a bad three-ring circus, I guess you'd have to say. But they think it's still there. Now, there was an article in a recent archaeological magazine that says that they have now confirmed that that was a wall that was left standing of a Roman fort or a garrison, not the wall of the temple. Now, is Christ a liar or isn't he? He said there wouldn't be one stone upon another, but the whole Jewish world didn't believe a thing he said in chapter 23, and they still don't. They still think it's there. Now, I ask you this. You've been told all your life that that is the west wall of the temple, and the Jews go to wail there because of the destruction. And all those stones are still laid, one right on top of the other, all the way up it. I went up to it. I touched it. I didn't shriek or chant or pray uh, in the way that the Jews were. Uh, in my mind, I was ridiculing it because I knew that that could not be the west wall of the temple because Christ showed him them that temple. 
and said it would all be torn down and not one stone left. Now, do you believe Christ? The Jews don't. The whole Jewish world does not believe Christ. The whole Jewish world still thinks that's the west wall of the temple. I say the whole. Maybe there's six individuals that don't, but you know what I mean. But it's not. It can't be. Or Christ is a liar, and the truth was not in him. That's not the west wall of the temple. can't be. So, where does that leave the Jews? <laughs> it means they're still clinging to their traditions, and they're still fighting a war with the whole Muslim, Islamic sons of Ishmael over that spot thinking that's where they must build a temple in the end time. And the whole Christian world out there, for the most part, believe that the Jews are going to build a temple there in the end time, and that is going to be, they're going to set up these sacrifices and everything, and that then the beast and the false prophet will defile that temple. Do you believe that? The whole Christian world does. They think the Jews are going to do it. Let me ask you this. If the Jews were everything that Christ just told them they were, and he said their house would be left desolate, and then he told the disciples afterward not one stone left on another, do you think Christ is going to use the Jews to build the temple of God? He said, they don't know me. They are hypocrites. They're liars. And I am disfellowshipping them, and their house is going to be desolate and without God until they accept the ministry that he sent. Now, he sent the apostles and prophets, and they killed them. And in the end time, he sent a man to once again teach the truth of the Bible, the Sabbath, the holy days, on and on it goes. The true plan of salvation is opposed to going to heaven or hell when you die. And on and on. The purpose of man on the earth to become God. He sent someone to do that. Did they accept him? Did they believe him? No. The only level on which they accepted Herbert Armstrong was when he would go and see Teddy Kulik in Jerusalem and give them gifts of money and other things and they would accept him and receive him. But did they believe what he said? No. Did they accept him as a teacher and a minister and the one through whom they should learn the truth? No. They accepted his money and his gifts and that was it in totality. So, I believe God sent Herbert Armstrong. Don't you? I believe that. And much of what I know came from that man and those that he taught. There were some wrongs, and there were some things that he didn't restore because he wasn't Elijah. But he restored an awful lot, and he began a church that had its basis in truth. Through whom God called many people, and he's going to choose 10% out of those many to come and build the temple back. So they are going to be converted people who have roots in the worldwide church of God nowhere else. 
the Jews are not going to be included in building the temple. Neither are the so-called Christians. God is going to call a 10% remnant out of those who were called under Herbert Armstrong, who are faithful, who have not bowed their knee to Baal, and they will come and build a temple. So it's not a Jewish deal. Their house is still desolate, and it will be desolate until Christ returns and sets up the millennium and offers salvation to any and everyone. And most of them, all of these he was speaking to then, won't be around for the millennium. They'll be in the great white throne judgment, way on down the line, because they never were converted, and they never were part of what God was doing. So he says, not only will it be desolate, fellows, there, there will only be one stone left on another. So forget the wailing wall, and forget the aspirations of the Jew to build the Jews to build the temple of God. If the Jews build anything, it will be the temple of the Jews. It won't be the temple of God. I know a man quite well who thinks he's going to set up the kingdom of God. No, he is not going to set up the kingdom of God. If he sets up a kingdom, it will be the kingdom of him, not the kingdom of God. How does anybody set up the kingdom of God without God involved? You can't do it. God has to direct it, and he'll use whom he uses. All right. Now that sets the Jews aside as any leadership here in the end time. That's what I've spent nearly an hour trying to get across is that whatever you may have thought in past decades, the Jews are not involved with God or in the work of God in any shape, form, or fashion here in the end time unless and until they accept the ministry that Christ has sent. And the whole world is going to turn against them. That's very obvious. The whole world, the whole new world order, is going to turn against the ministry that Christ sends. And they will kill them in the end. So, not only are the Jews not involved with the work of God, neither is anybody else except those whom God has trained through those whom he has sent. That's all. Now, let's get a sense of the timing here. Because this has been pretty powerful so far about what will and will not be. Verse 3, And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, no multitude, no scribes, no Pharisees, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of your coming and the end of the world? Now, he had obviously been teaching them that he was going to be killed, he was going to go away, and he would come back at some time, and that would be at the end of the age of man and of Satan. But they were still unclear as to the timing. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Over our experience in the last nearly hundred years. They didn't quite get that. So they, what, 
what, when's this going to happen? Now, after what he told them here, they still went away thinking he was coming back in their lifetime. You read what the apostles wrote. You read what uh, Paul and James and John and Peter and others wrote. And they still believed that he was coming back in their time. Clearly in what they wrote. And Christ allowed them to think that. Now we've got an ultimate limit on that. He tells us a little later on down here that it will be this generation called at the end that will not die out until these things have all happened. And that time is drawing very near when there will not be any old men left who saw the former temple under Herbert Armstrong at its best and the latter temple and be able to compare the two. Uh, the old men who saw both are getting old indeed. So there's a time limit on this thing. It can't be much longer. A time limit imposed by Scripture. Anyway, we'll get to that. What shall be the signs? Well, let's get into this at least briefly. Then he answered and said to them, Take heed that no man deceive you. There will be all kinds of different ideas and beliefs. One of them, for instance, is what we've just talked about. There would be people who come along that tell them, Well, Jews have to win a war in the Middle East, and the Arabs have to be put down, and then the Jews will build the temple of God. No, uh, that's not one of the things that's going to happen. I think we've covered that fairly extensively here. You don't need to look to that. That won't happen. They're not going to tear down the whaling, I mean, tear down the uh, Dome of the Rock and build the Temple of God there. If somehow <coughs> the Jews manage to tear down that dome without being completely invaded and wiped out by the whole Muslim world, they still won't build the temple of God there. Can you imagine what would happen if the Jews decided to just send a missile and blow up that mosque? They would have the whole Muslim world, a billion people, descend upon that little country immediately. Think that's going to happen? Do you think the Jews would be bold enough to do that? When they know what would happen immediately, they'd all die. And then they wouldn't be building the temple. So, he says, take heed that no man deceive you. Don't buy the Jewish story. Don't buy the Christian world story. For many shall come in my name... They'll have the name of Christ, whether they be Protestants or Catholics or Messianic Jews or whoever. They'll come in my name saying that I'm Christ and shall deceive many. They don't know Christ. Didn't he say to people, if you don't do what I say, I know you not? You think you know me, but I don't know you. They'll deceive many people. People will think that they're preaching Christ. And they are not preaching Christ, they're preaching Satan. Do you see then how it is possible for Satan to deceive the whole world, letting them in some way 
if they're of, of a Christian mind, that his way is the right way. Now, that's spreading across America today. More and more people are denying Christ or denying Christianity, and more and more people are accepting uh, Mother Earth worship, Gaia, whether they use it in outward form or not, and that this earth is God, and that there is no God, and therefore all kinds of sexual perversions and so on are A-OK, and that's the thing to do. And they're teaching our children in school that homosexuality and transgenderism and all this stuff is normal and natural. They're deceiving many, and they're going to deceive everyone. But, of course, they're going to try to kill everyone who uses the name of Christ anyway. In this country, brethren, do we realize it? If you use the name of Christ in schools, they will expel you in some places. If you fly the Muslim flag, it's acceptable. If you put up the American flag, they make you take it down. That's going on in this country right now, today. And it's spreading exponentially. We now have died and true Muslims in the Congress of the United States of America. We have queers and perverts who are congressmen and even in the White House, or have been in the White House, and may still be, who knows. They're certainly working in the White House if they're not the main officials in the White House. We are sick from head to foot. And many are deceived. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. Have we not been hearing that now for quite some time? And there are many, many wars going on right now on the face of the earth. And there are more wars that are rumored. Uh, the Pakistanis and the Indians are not at war at the moment, but they're certainly threatening each other. Taiwan and China are not at war, but there's rumors that they're going to have a war. And the Chinese recently got upset when we were said we were selling uh, uh, weapons to Taiwan because they want to defeat Taiwan. I mean, you can just go on and on and on. There are wars and rumors everywhere. We are rumored to be getting into more war not only in Syria, but in Iran, even as the ones continue in Afghanistan. Uh, there have been rumors about us going into Venezuela as well. Uh, so on and on it goes. Now that has increased, especially in the last five years. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Or I might put in there, not quite yet. <laughs> the end is close, because he's saying, in answer to their question, what are the signs and what is the end of the world? So, he's answering that, and he says, you're going to hear this, but the end isn't yet. It's close, but it's not yet. <laughs> because the end is what he's talking about, in answer to their question. So he says, you'll hear of wars and rumors of war, <coughs> but it's not quite over. For nations shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in different places. Now let's focus there just for a moment. 
we today are facing famine very shortly in this country. There are already a lot of homeless people, and it's increased a great deal on our streets and our big cities, and they're becoming, uh, they're, they're blocks and blocks and blocks of people living in tents and under a cardboard and whatever. They can't afford housing, or they're so drugged up and everything that they couldn't, even if it was possible. But that number is growing exponentially as we speak. <clears throat> but right now, we have had rain in the major agricultural production areas of this country this spring to the point that the farmers were unable to plant a high percentage of their crops. And even of those crops that were planted, they had so much rain on them that the plants are unhealthy. Instead of being vibrant green, they're yellowed uh, because you water them too much or they had too much water. I've got a or had a desert tree back here, and it was too near the septic tank. And the tree drowned. It couldn't take that much water. It turned yellow and died. The ones that are a little further away are still fine and happy and healthy, but that one got too much water, and it killed it. That's what's happening to the corn and soybean crops in several states, the main producing states of this country today. Now, they expect a very, very low harvest. And that doesn't even encounter or say whether there will be more rain. And there's more rain right now in the form of a hurricane headed north up the Mississippi River as we sit here today. And it is going up as high as Missouri and maybe even further with more rain. Missouri is one of those states that's crops are already overwatered. So more rain is coming. And they may get inches and inches of rain and more flooding because all of that rain that's going north from this hurricane is going to get in the water system and then head south. After it comes from the south and rains in the north, it's going to go back south. So the floods are going to continue. And then what if it just turns out? I hear thunder. <laughs> Ironically. Uh, now what if it turns completely dry and doesn't rain. And then those yellow plants from too much water will just simply wither and die if they don't get the rain they need. I'm not saying that's going to happen. I don't know. But already, with what has happened, the crops are going to be way, way, way down. Well, what happens if you don't have the corn to feed the cattle and the sheep to produce meat. The price of what is there goes way up, and a lot of animals die of starvation because they can't get enough feed for them. And dairy cows will not have what they need to produce either. So you're not going to have much meat. It'll be scarce and very high priced. Dairy products are going to go way down and be scarce and be very, very high priced. Now, this is not happening only in America. It's happening this year around the world. There are many nations who are having terrible trouble with their crops this year. This probably is the year that is the beginning of the famines that Christ is talking about. 
Now, there have been famines throughout history in some places in Africa or here and there. Uh, there have been places where they couldn't produce crops. But there's always been America or someone who would come in and feed those people. America won't be able to do that anymore because our own crops are failing. Famine is at the door. Famine, and then he says pestilences. What happens when you have famines and people's health and their immune systems begin to go downhill? Then you have disease that starts. Famine and pestilence or disease always go together. <coughs> now let's understand that much of what is happening is being engineered by man at the direction of Satan. There are records that go back at least into the 60s where the U.S. government was talking about how they were learning to manipulate the weather. Official documents put out by our military. Jack Kennedy, the president, said that we are learning to control the weather and that this will be a wonderful thing that can be used for the good of man so that there won't be droughts and there won't be floods and we'll be able to control it so that we get the right amount of rain. Now there's a stroll down Rosebud Lane. <laughs> Don't people always misuse anything they learn to do? This hurricane that just hit Louisiana, I've been reading over the last few days, that it's acting different. It's acting funny. It's not acting like a normal hurricane. That it's kind of lopsided, and that it's moving at a slower pace than a normal one that blows in from the Atlantic or that might be generated in the Gulf, which a few are. But they said it's acting different. I don't remember all the details of all that, and it doesn't matter, but the very fact that it is not doing what a hurricane normally does indicates to me that some of the geoengineering of the weather may be going on, and they don't have it so that it comes in in a totally natural way, but that it's deformed or doesn't act quite like nature, but it's a little different and yet still devastating. Does that blow your mind away? Did I say that? Go back and read Job 2. It says there that, or Job 1 and 2, <clears throat> that God turned Job over to Satan. And he told him, do anything you want to do to Job and Whatever he has, just don't kill him. So what, did, what was one of the things that Satan did? A great mighty wind came, and where his sons and family were partying was completely blown down, and everyone was killed but one who went to tell Job of the tragedy. Satan is called in Scripture the prince of the power of the air. He can control the weather. He can send a tornado. He can send a hurricane. He sent a great wind, whatever form it was, tornado, I don't know. He sent, at the least, a great wind that absolutely blew the whole place down and killed everybody but one. Satan has that power as the prince of the power of the air. 
Now, these people who literally and outwardly, the Rothschilds and the elites, who have their Bohemian Grove meetings and their sacrifices to Satan and so on, are so closely attuned to Satan that he has been able to impart to them the ability to engineer the weather. It does not surprise me when God says all these things are going to happen, that he allows Satan and his henchmen and those that he controls to do it. Often when God had something terrible he wanted done, who did he call to get the job done? The one that was the best at it. (laughs) The one that wanted to do it. He'd call on Satan to do it. Now isn't he going to call on Satan for a lot of these terrible, terrible things that are about to happen. The anger of Satan is great. He knows his time is short. He knows he's going to be bound a thousand years. So his anger is going to be unleashed on the whole world. And he is going to do to a lot of people the same thing he did to Job's children. And he is going to use men to do those things Does not God use men, the prophets, the priests, the ministry, to do His work through men? Is He able somehow to communicate through His Holy Spirit to His prophets and teachers? Yes, He always has. Satan is also a spirit. And he has those same powers, not to the extent God does, but almost to the extent that God does. I mean, he was able to wage war against God. He has a lot of power. Now, he ultimately lost, but it left the universe in a terrible mess. Because he has that kind of power. Now, when these lying signs and wonders come, they're going to be so great that they would deceive the very elect if it were at all possible. It's going to be that powerful and that dramatic. We've been told so. So if I say that man has learned to do some geoengineering and to affect the weather, I don't find that hard to believe. Especially when they tell me from the military journals and the president of the U.S., that they have and are. They announce it. And if they've announced it, surely they must be doing it. And have they learned more since the 60s when Jack Kennedy said that? Yeah, I'll say so. I would not be at all surprised if this incredible wet area in the Middle West was geoengineered. Or that this strange little hurricane that just came in was geoengineered. Now we are seeing... The famine's beginning. That will be followed by pestilence. It is estimated right now that Big Pharma and the doctors, with their drugs, kill 800,000 Americans a year. Killed by drugs. Opioids and on and on it goes. They kill that many people. That's a lot of people. Car accidents kill 30,000, 40,000 maybe. 800,000, they estimate, from drugs that doctors give. 
Is that pestilence? <laughs> There'll be famines and pestilences, earthquakes in different places. Now, just in the last two months, from early May until early July, <coughs> there have been 38 what they classify as major earthquakes in the Ring of Fire. I think they say it right around the five number is a major earthquake. 38. And many of those have been 6.4 and even into 7. Just in two months. That little town of Ridgecrest in California, in the last week to ten days, however long it's been, there have been over 11,000 earthquakes. Some of them not very big, but to be felt. 11,000. Places shaking like a bowl of jelly. And now they're extending further north and east and west. And they just had two, I think it was this morning or yesterday morning, whichever it was, in the Pacific Northwest along the Seattle-Tacoma-Oregon line. Uh, I-5 corridor, in other words. They just had a 6.4 just before Ridgecrest off the north tip of Vancouver Island. The whole ring of fire is waking up there are volcanoes going off all around it. And that is going to happen on the west coast of America. And now it has started waking up. I've been wondering, you know, I, I hear about this stuff in Indonesia and New Guinea and all these places on the Ring of Fire, Chile, wherever. But nothing much was happening on the west coast. Now it's starting to happen. It's getting scary. The things that Christ said would happen at the end. We have read this over the years, over the decades, many times. And we'd see an earthquake here or there. We'd hear something and think, oh, this must be it. This must be it. I think it's going to an entirely different level now. It's beginning to, to shake the whole world. And you know what? All that volcanic ash being spewed into the air, it's not just earthquakes. But that can create cold weather. And they had, back in the Middle Ages, 1500s, whenever it was, 1700s, I forget. Uh, Krakatoa, or let's see, which one was it, that blew up. And the next year, all around the world, they had terrible famine. Because they couldn't grow crops. It was too cold. Crops wouldn't ripen. Think that can't happen again? Here at the end, where terrible famines will be around the world. We're seeing it begin to happen today. What if some of these big dams in this country are shaken by an earthquake and split and they're above cities? You know, there's so many things that can happen from earthquakes and volcanoes. All these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. All these, verse 8, are the beginning of sorrows. What we're seeing beginning to happen now on an earth-wide basis. Famine within the next three, four, five, six months. Because the crops don't come in. <coughs> and these increased earthquakes and volcanic activity. These are just the beginning of the sorrows that are to come. What the people in Louisiana and Mississippi are experiencing today as we sit here 
are just the beginning of the sorrows that come. Let's stop there.